Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the book of Acts, and here Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers are going to be discussing Acts 17, which covers Paul and Silas in both Thessalonica and Berea, Paul's trip to Athens, and Paul addressing the Areopagus. As always, we do invite you to check out those show notes. Specifically, we invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. We are right now in the middle of an ongoing series going through the book of Revelation with Peter Lightheart, and we're also regularly posting psalm chanting videos. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this conversation over this passage. And here is Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers discussing Acts 17. Welcome to the Theopus Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers and Alistair Roberts. Brian Modes, as usual, is recording and making sure that all of the all of the recording is finished and smoothed out and delivered to you, our podcast audience. We thank you for joining us. We're in the middle of a series on the book of Acts, and we have covered the first 16 chapters of the book of Acts. Uh, today, we're going to go through the 17th chapter, where we have a series of different events and cities that uh, Paul visits and uh, different kinds of confrontations and clashes and discussions with those who are in those cities. The last time we had a podcast on Acts, I pointed out that we're in a section of Acts where Paul's mission is being opposed by uh, different opponents. Uh, The mission of the church has been opposed from the very beginning of Acts, but we have a series of accusatory scenes beginning in chapter 16, the, the last chapter that we covered. And we have Gentiles bringing charges against Paul and his associates, and also Jews bringing charges against Paul and his associates. Uh, In Philippi, it's Gentiles who charge Paul and Silas with teaching customs that are not fitting for Romans, and so they bring Paul before the magistrates, and Paul and Silas end up in jail overnight. In this chapter, in chapter 17, Paul uh, visits Thessalonica, and in Thessalonica, he has some success, but the Jews gathered together against the host that Paul had in Thessalonica and attack his house, looking for Paul, and then drag Jason, his host, before the magistrates, accusing them of violating the the decrees of Caesar. Uh, Paul moves on to Berea, and the Bereans are receptive, but the Thessalonican Jews uh, follow them and uh, stir up the city of Berea. And so those two cities to go together, Thessalonica and Berea, are both Jewish uh, challenges to the to the uh, gospel in Athens. Paul gives a sermon, but there's no riot or uh, there's no crowd stirred up against them. The magistrates don't t- try to stop him. But in the next chapter, we'll see Paul gets to Corinth, and again there are Jews opposing Paul's ministry. And then in the following chapter, we'll get to Ephesus, where there's a riot that uh, breaks out because of Paul's preaching against idolatry, and it it affects the trade in. Uh, the silversmith trade who uh, produce images of Artemis, the goddess of the Ephesians. And so we have that series of events that uh, there are two Gentile, two cities where Gentiles are the main opponents of the gospel and two cities where the Jews are the main opponents. opponents. And the first part of chapter 17 uh, is about the, the Paul's visit to Thessalonica and Berea. Uh, and there again, it's the Thessalonican Jews who oppose him both in their own city and then they track him all the way to Berea 
and they uh, stir up the crowd against Paul in Berea also. Although Paul and Silas are very much interacting with Jews at the beginning of this chapter, by the end we see another stage in the progression beyond the world of Judaism as they're addressing an audience of leading Gentile thinkers. And so we're seeing something of maybe a diversion from the course that they had originally expected. The original course of the um, mission had been primarily to Jews, and now they seem to be moving into engagement with Greek philosophers and others in the context of Athens. Um, The initial engagement, though, is very much in the context of Judaism. The opponents are those of the Jewish synagogue, and then they follow them to Berea. And understanding the nature of the mission, I think, might be interesting at this point, the way that Paul and Silas go about their acts of persuasion. We see something different at the end of the chapter, but at the beginning, it seems to be a form of synagogue persuasion in the context of the synagogue. And that community being a community of deliberation about the ideas that Paul and Silas are sharing. Um, which I think is important when we talk about the concept of Berean Christians. We can often have a notion that's detached from that world of collective discourse and deliberation about the meaning of the scriptures. And in particular, Paul has been, as he goes from place to place, he's been teaching from the scriptures about the Christ, that the Christ had to suffer and rise again, as uh, chapter 17, verse 3 says, uh, and then trying to persuade them that Jesus fits that Old Testament paradigm of the Christ. Uh, That's a form of teaching from the scriptures that goes all the way back to the end of Luke's gospel. It's the way that Jesus teaches his disciples to understand the scriptures, uh, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. And we see that periodically through the book of Acts. This is the form of teaching that the apostles are engaged in. They're trying to show from scriptures that the story of scripture is about the Christ, that it's about his suffering and his glory. And then showing that Jesus is the one who fits that narrative that the Old Testament prefigures. When reading about the approach of Paul and Silas and the other missionaries in debating with the Jews and the way that the scripture plays into this, we can often have this notion of the early church and the time of the first century in Jewish context as one where it was primarily just the scribes and others who were engaging with the scriptures. But recently there's been increasing work on the subject to show that communal reading of scripture was fairly widespread and it was pervasive. It was the dominant form of early church engagement with the scriptures. Brian Wright has done a lot of work on this subject. And so when we're reading about the encounter between the Bereans and Paul's message and um, the other synagogues, we need to think about these sorts of communal contexts. When we read the text, we're primarily reading it as individuals engaging with these texts in the privacy of our own homes. Whereas for the first century hearers of Paul's message, they'd presumably be gathering together in communal discourse and deliberation about the message that Paul has presented. You can maybe imagine people throwing forward questions, people looking up the texts and saying, it does in fact say this within the prophecy of Isaiah. And that sort of discourse yielding a communal understanding and a communal response to the message of the, of the missionaries. In the Gospels, John's Gospel in particular, uh, when Jesus is teaching in the temple, uh, there's a lot of this interaction. Jesus said, then they said, and then Jesus said, and they asked a question and Jesus answered. Um, a lot more of that than it 
usually happens in our churches. Uh, and, you know, in our churches, what happens is one person gets up with a rhetorically refined message, and then everybody just sits there and listens. I've always been fascinated by early church reflections, early church observations of uh, how sermons were actually done with pastors sitting down and interacting with people who shouted out or called out questions while they were speaking. It just seems like a much more effective way of engaging the community and also of, um, of teaching than the way we often do in our sermons. And that continued for centuries after. Of course, you have evidence even with a, as late as Augustine, where Augustine is in kind of a, a very active discussion with his congregation. So have you ever tried that, Jeff? Have you ever opened up things to uh, your congregation to ask you questions? That's a very good question. And I've often um, told people to think about the differences between our Sunday school, which happens after the service. And that's where I sit on a stool. And oftentimes, we'll end up talking about the sermon for a half hour when we should be talking about some other topic. And that's usually when things begin to click for people, because people will ask me questions about something I said, and I thought I was perfectly clear. Of course, I'm always perfectly clear. And they will ask me and say, did you mean this by this or that by that? Or what are the implications of this? And it's one of the most productive times for me as a pastor in much more productive in some ways than standing up behind a pulpit and preaching. So yeah, uh, we do that. And then oftentimes too, I've done maybe once every couple years, I've stood behind the table instead of up at the pulpit and talk to people and ask them for interactions. Of course, they all feel really self-conscious because it's the middle of a church service. We're not supposed to talk <laughs> and try to draw them out. It's a little more difficult because we're just not used to it. Yeah, something to experiment with, though, huh? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I like the idea of, uh, I've never been in a church that did it, but I, I've heard of uh, your church and there's others that I know where the Sunday school occurs afterwards and people attend the Sunday school in large numbers because it is about the sermon and it's interactive. It goes into more depth than the sermon does. And the sermon can play a more liturgical role rather than having to bear the heavy kind of exegetical weight. And you can do the more detailed exegetical discussions in Sunday school. And that, that takes some of the pressure off the sermon. I think that's a, seems like a good way to set things up. In some ways, the sort of conversation that we're having here about a text is probably not too dissimilar from the sort of thing that Paul and Silas would be encouraging, um, mm -hmm. and much of the work that we do with Theopolis more generally in the class. Right, right. So Paul goes into the synagogue in Thessalonica. Uh, that's what we've been talking about, and he reasons with the Jews about the Christ. Uh, this is in a communal setting. They're discussing the scriptures. And uh, many are converted, but then there's this opposition from the Jews who become jealous and stir up the crowd uh, and go searching for Paul and Silas and uh, don't find them. So they end up taking Jason, their host, and dragging him before the, before the authorities. And one of the interesting things here is that Paul goes to the synagogue and begins by talking about Jesus as the Christ, and then... Uh, the charges get brought before the city officials, and the charges have this political edge to it, which we really may not anticipate if we're just thinking this is a Bible study. You know, they're talking about Jesus as the Christ who had to suffer and rise again. 
and there's this shift from that to the charges that are that are political charges. They're they're speaking contrary to the decrees of Caesar and claiming there's another king. Uh, and I think at, at least that alerts us to the fact that Paul's discussions within the synagogue, talking about the Christ, that is the anointed one, already has this kind of political dimension to it. Uh, he's talking about he's talking about a Jewish king who has risen from the dead and is now judge, as he's going to tell the Athenians, he's been appointed as judge of all men. Uh, and uh, so the the Jews aren't making up this political dimension. That's already inherent in the in the gospel that Paul's preaching and and defending within the synagogue. There's there's another political angle here too because Paul is actually doing what the Jews were called to do and that is helping the Gentiles. Notice here that many uh, God-fearing Gentiles and leading women uh, join with Paul. Paul is doing what the Jews are called to do during this time period out into the diaspora. Um, he's proclaiming the Christ, and he's acting in a reasonable way. But the Jews, at least the apostate Jews, the ones that don't follow Paul, are uh, becoming zealots. They're jealous. They're actually not functioning as they ought to in being a, a source of stability and law and order in the empire. They are, uh, you know, stirring up riots and seeking to um, uh, seeking to kill and drag off um, Paul. This is something that kind of goes on through the book of Acts. We've probably talked about this already once before, is that the apostate Jews, they're, they become more and more self-conscious, epistemologically self-conscious about uh, their, uh, their role in the world. They're just, they just, they're just haters. Um, and Paul then is leaving behind, and we're going to see this here in, in Athens as well. Paul is leaving behind people who will then function in this political way, in this kind of uh, not direct political action, but indirect way, be a source of life and peace and health to these cities and these communities. The response of the Jews that they are provoked to jealousy by the success of Paul's mission among the Gentiles, I suppose, also sets us up for some of the themes that Paul brings to the surface in Romans chapter 9 to 11, that the success of the gospel among the Gentiles is fulfilling the mission that the Jews were always supposed to perform. And yet, as they had failed in that, and as the gospel is successful, they should be provoked to to jealousy, and that jealousy should provoke them to repentance, though here it provokes them to persecution. You mentioned some of the people who are converted. These are devout Jew Greeks and not a few of the leading women. These are people who are within the orbit of the synagogue community, presumably, but they are from the wider um, town, presumably people with great influence. Um, the reference to the leading women, both here and in Berea, is interesting because we have previously the significance of Lydia as a character in Philippi. It seems that a number of women were attracted to the message of the gospel, much as we see in Luke chapter 8, that the people around Christ included a number of significant um, women who had resources and were able to fund the mission. And it seems that the early church is appealing to that same sort of group, which maybe should ask lead us to ask why it was particularly appealing to the women and what influence that had in the way that the church spread. 
Yeah, that's a that's a point that uh, Rodney Stark brings up in his Rise of Christianity. I, I alluded to this in uh, the um, conversation, current conversation at the Theopolis website on on masculinity, and one of his arguments is that women were given greater freedom. They were able to exercise certain kinds of leading positions within the within the community. They weren't uh, functioning as elders or pastors, but they have significant roles as deaconesses and widows and caring for widows. He says that even widows in the early church had greater freedom of choice. Uh, They didn't have to remarry. They weren't pressured to remarry uh, and they had other, they just had more options. So there's a, there's a, uh, an attraction uh, in terms of the, you know, just women's greater scope of activity in the church than they had in the, in the surrounding pagan culture. What, what do you make of the uh, verse nine says that um, Jason, the host of Paul and Silas was taken to the city authorities and they received a pledge from him and then they released them and they didn't, uh, they didn't continue with any kind of further charges. Uh, what, what kind of pledge are you, do you suspect is going on there? What, what is Jason promised or what has he given to the city authorities uh, in response to the charges against him? Do you think this is some sort of bribe? I mean, in order to uh, get the officials off their back, he pays some security money and promises, uh, well, I don't know. That's a good question. What does he promise? Um, What is it? Are are they giving in to the Jews uh, and to the mob? Um, Are they just recognizing it from a practical point of view that there's not much else they can do here? Mm-hmm. Um, this, you know, this happens when Paul has to leave Damascus in a basket. Uh, Paul's often having to, um, get out of town. He will again, even in uh, Berea. So I don't know. I've always thought that this was just something that happens like even today in countries that aren't, uh, you know, agreeable to the gospel. Sometimes you have to, um, you have to pay officials in order to get, get by. Yeah, I wasn't necessarily suggesting it was a bribe, although it could it could have that function. But I mean, you do have a different situation with Jason than you have with Paul and Silas, because Paul and Silas are itinerant missionaries who yeah. are going to, going to go on to Berea. They're hastened away in a in in a nighttime Passover Exodus escape, uh, like many of Paul's escapes. It takes place at night and suggests an Exodus an Exodus theme. But Jason doesn't have that option. Uh, this is Jason. Thessalonica is Jason's hometown, and uh, there's you know he's got to operate within the constraints of the of the politics of that of that city. It was maybe maybe it's some kind of fine, uh, and I suspect that the what's uh, the charges have the charges have the uh, impl- implied claim that this is a subversive group that they're trying to take down the empire in some way, and. Maybe it's uh, some kind of pledge of uh, peaceableness in the city that would might involve some kind of fine, but it would be a promise to avoid further further riots. Of course, the, Jason is not responsible for the riot in the first place. Uh, he's he's the target of the riot rather than the instigator. Yeah, I think my use of the word bribe was a little bit probably wasn't wise. I didn't mean it in that's in the sense of you know immoral use of bribe, but just as a security to promise that. He's going to uh, watch out and make sure that none of this that's being accused, none, none of these things that the, the apostles are being accused of actually happens. But I want to go back to this question. They've turned the world upside down. 
Peter, you mentioned one of the ways in which the world is being turned upside down with regard to women and their place in society and in the church. Um, but it is rather striking, isn't it, that um, even by this time, word is getting around. Now, this could be an embellishment. This could be an exaggeration, uh, and probably is in some sense for these Jews trying to get their way with the city council. But still, it's rather remarkable that by this time, the world is uh, listening, the world is reacting, uh, and um, there's some sense in which everything that the apostles are saying is, it's going to change things. It's going to change things momentously, and um, I don't think Caesar's going to like that, guys. (laughs) Yeah, uh, just a a note on that. I I suspect that there's some kind of... um, there's some kind of pun going on here between the word, the verb for turning upside down or agitating, which is anastatosantes, that's in verse six. Mm-hmm. And uh, the verb for a raise, rise again, or Jesus rose again, is anastani. So there seems to be in this passage a, a verbal pun between Paul's proclamation of resurrection and the effect in the city is to turn things upside down, which of course is what resurrection does. I mean, the most uh, settled boundary of all is between the living and the dead. And uh, Paul's going around saying that that's, that very settled boundary is being disrupted and overturned. That's a point that N.T. Wright makes when he, when he talks about the Sadducees rejecting resurrection. It's a political position as well as a theological one. Uh, they don't want, the, they don't want the, um, the status quo to be upset because they're, they're the ones who are at the top of the heap at the moment. Although that sort of status quo can be very vulnerable. It's a fragile ecosystem, as it were, with certain people existing alongside each other. And for a significant portion of the patrons, for instance, if you had the devout Greeks leading women being taken off in support of this new sect, it would be threatening for the place of Judaism within that culture. Um, It seems that when you have that sort of situation within a particular city for a new message to come in a new sect and for that to overturn that particular order it would be a threat to your place within the society to the influence of your movement to your social status the sort of meals that you'd be invited to the sort of influence that you would have in decisions all of these things are thrown into uncertainty and particularly when we see the speed with which the gospel is taking effect. These are the early days. This is something that has already had a huge impact in places like Jerusalem and in other parts of the Jewish world. And so they're seeing this tidal wave, as it were, approaching, and they don't want it to hit them too. They know that if it hits, it will change so much in unpredictable ways. They don't know exactly how this will turn out. Mm-hmm. And yet, when they, it's almost in their interest to play up the significance of this because they know if they don't, people won't take the sort of action against it that they really need to resist it. Yeah, that's a great point. That, that I mean, there, um, there, is a, there is a strain of reading of Acts that says that this is all concocted, that the, that the uh, Christians are being are being apolitical and these political charges are just uh, made out, made up of uh, uh, just out of jealousy or hostility, sheer hostility. But yeah, that's a really great point that they are actually undoing the social fabric in significant ways. And particularly the, 
the role that Jews might play uh, in in uh, these Greco-Roman cities. They're, are, they're genuinely under threat. The incident in Thessalonica is connected in a couple of ways to the following incidents in Berea, the account of Paul's mission in Berea uh, with Silas. I mean, on the one hand, you have the, oh, a contrast, I think, in the, the first two episodes of chapter 17 uh, between the reception of the gospel in Thessalonica and the reception of the gospel in Berea. But then you also have the link of personnel, as it were. The, the Jews who stirred up trouble in Thessalonica are now following Paul to Berea. And because the Berean mission has been successful, many believe in Berea, verse 12 says, along with the number of prominent Greeks, Greek women and men. So again, Paul, uh, Luke is emphasizing the, the uh, conversion of women and their attachment to this movement. But then the Jews from Thessalonica catch up with them and they're following in Paul's footsteps. Alistair pointed this out some, some months ago that the, the, Jew, the Jews are carrying out a kind of anti-mission following Paul's missionary journeys, but going from one city to another to try to undo what Paul has accomplished. So we have that kind of a, a contrast of the reception, but we also have this link. The, res, the ultimate result is the same. There's disruption in both cities because of the Jews of Thessalonica following Paul and Silas on to Berea. Despite the opposition that they face in Thessalonica, when you read the epistles to the Thessalonians, it's almost a, mirac- a sense of the miraculous impact of the gospel when they go to that city and despite the short period of time that they have there, despite the opposition, despite the fact that they have this fledgling church and then they have to leave just as it's trying to find its feet. Um, yet they see the work that Christ has continued to do there when they send Timothy back and um, they're assured of the fact that what Christ has begun has been continued and that a successful church has been planted in the most unpromising of situations. It's worth reminding ourselves of the fact that God is in control of this entire mission, even though they face this extreme persecution. That actually does not destroy the seed that was planted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I just uh, emphasize the, the brief time that they're there. Uh, as far as we can tell, Paul reasons with the Jews in the synagogue for three Sabbaths, and then this disruption breaks out, um, which I think is not just uh, not just highlighting the brevity, but also there's a typological significance to that. That uh, there's a a period of three, and then there's a then there's an outbreak of opposition. It's a a typical kind of three day, three month, three year pattern in Scripture. Then then some kind of major transition happens at the on the third. Uh, period of time. Even so, even if he was just there for three weeks, uh, Alistair mentioned his letter to Thessalonians. It is pretty astonishing, uh, especially chapter two in that letter, of how intimate uh, Paul says they were with the Thessalonians. Um, and you can't you you can't find um, really a better. Uh, outline of Christian ministry than there in First Thessalonians, where Paul talks about them, them caring for these people like their own children, like a mother caring for children, and all the affection, all the toil and labor. They work night and day. It's pretty. It, 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 we have a really short one paragraph description in Acts seventeen one through nine, but if you look at First uh, Thessalonians two, you get a a really impressive picture of how 
how careful Paul was in his ministry to these people. He wasn't just going in there and debating and reasoning in the synagogues. He was also living among them in, in a significant uh, personal way. I think that's a really important point, Jeff, that there's a, I mean, some people can live with you for three, three weeks and uh, you, you forget <laughs> that they were even there. Uh, but Paul has this kind of, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a literal charisma. He's filled with the spirit and he makes an impact wherever he goes. And if Paul's there for three weeks or, you know, it's, it's some longer period of time, presumably, but uh, we're, we're told about the three weeks, uh, maybe slightly longer than that. But, um, but Paul, Paul in a place for a short period of time, uh, everything, <laughs> everything changes. Uh, he doesn't have to stay for a year and a half as he does in Corinth in order to have an impact. Uh, there's a, there's kind of a, he, he detonates something wherever he goes. Detonation is a decent word. Real quick, Alistair, sorry. Um, it's his charisma his, is a double-edged sword. The people that believe love him. Mm-hmm. And the Jews that don't believe hate him. Uh, so it, there's these two poles to Paul. Mm-hmm. He either has this great love that he uh, encourages and and by his personality, by his teaching that he calls forth. But then also, there are just people that hate, want to kill him, want to execute mm-hmm. him, want to stone mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes we forget that as Christian ministers, we, we want everybody to love us. And we even try to ingratiate ourselves to the enemies of the church in ways that we hope that uh, they'll love us. And sometimes that's not possible. Mm-hmm. Reading through these chapters, we also see Paul and Silas being beaten, traveling long distances from place to place. And then we read about their activity among the Christians in these newly planted churches, the sheer emotional energy that they are giving into um, the lives of these new converts. And then having persecution flare up again, um, some riot or mob, and then having to flee to another place. And you get a sense of the sheer amount of energy and physical resources that this would take from them. This would utterly drain a normal person. And when you consider that, it seems there must be something miraculous taking place here with just as the um, shoes of the Israelites not wearing out during their time in the wilderness, these human beings are being tested to their very limits, but they're not being weared out. They're not being worn out mm-hmm. um, because of the spirit that is at work within them. Um, this mission would utterly exhaust and destroy any lesser human beings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, si- one sign that Paul is the, the flashpoint for all this is uh, what happens uh, in the aftermath of uh, the, the disruption that the Thessalonican Jews call, cause in Berea. Silas and Timothy remain in Berea with the Christians that are there because they know that the, the real cause of disruption, the real target of the disruption, I should say, is Paul. And so they, they send Paul away while they stay behind in Berea. And so we have this section uh, in uh, chapter 17, verses 16 through the end, where Paul is by himself. Uh, he's been on missionary journeys with other people so far. Uh, he's with Paul, uh, he's with Silas and Timothy uh, in um, in Berea, then he's alone in Athens. Silas and Timothy are going to catch up with him again in Corinth, but you have this this period of time where Paul is isolated in between that uh, by himself in Athens uh, and gives this famous speech in Athens. You know, the, the, just a note on the 
this section, the chap- in verses 16 through 34, the uh, concluding part of chapter 17, you have a, a frame where Paul is concerned about idolatry at the beginning of the chapter. He's provoked by the idolatry of Athens. Uh, at the end, many people are turning from their idols and serving the living God. There's reference to the philosophers who are curious about Paul and questioning him, and then they're, they become skeptical about Paul when he begins talking about the resurrection and judgment to come. And so you have that frame around it. And then within, within the middle of that, Paul's sermon occupies verses 22 to 31. And I think that has this kind of chiastic structure, too, uh, where he begins by talking about their worshiping in ignorance. And then toward the, end of the, toward the end of the sermon, he says, the times of ignorance are ended. You're not going to get away with worshiping an unknown God anymore. Uh, he talks about God being the creator, not served by human hands or uh, doesn't dwell in temples. That's contrasted with the emphasis on human beings being children of God, and therefore God can't be, can't be made of stone or gold or something. The center of it is this statement about God making human beings from one man uh, and arranging the world in order to entice uh, all men everywhere to find him. So the emphasis is on God's, uh, God's uh, drawing men to himself, not just Jews, not just the people who've been chosen through Abraham, but, but Gentiles too. Uh, so we have, a, I think, uh, an overall chiastic structure to this section, and then within that, Paul's sermon itself has a chiastic structure that centers on that statement about uh, God making human beings from one blood. So Paul does what he always does. He goes into the synagogue first, reasoning with the Jews and also the God-fearing Gentiles who are listening in. But he's also in the marketplace in this case. And this chapter is interesting to me for a number of reasons, but one of it is that it's kind of pitiful because Athens at one time, you know, three, 400 years ago was the source and intellectual powerhouse. And now it's kind of past its prime. And, and it seems like there's just a bunch of dilettantes, uh, that dilettantism is the big thing here. So, um, uh, they were all, all, all the people just went around, talking about whether there's something new, kind of, you know, let's, let's share our memes with everybody and um, see what's cool. And Paul is accused of being a, well, my translation says babbler, but it, I think the word is more like a scavenger. So it's, it's usually used with regard to um, either ravens or uh, carrion birds picking, uh, picking meat or with um, homeless people kind of going around picking up rags. And so Paul is something of a, a make-believe philosopher who's picking and choosing all sorts of ideas uh, and then um, just throwing them out there, and, um, which, which really is what's going on in Athens at this time with most of these philosophers. So Paul is actually not, Paul is actually the opposite of that. Um, but it is just fascinating to see how far um, Athens as a intellectual center of the empire has fallen uh, with all of this. Yes, it is important to remember that by this time, there was probably only about 10,000 people in Athens. And although it retained significant symbolic value on account of its association with culture and learning. It really was not the center that it was in the past. Um, His response to the idolatry of the city may be 
playing upon um, tensions within the city itself. So you have the more general idolatry of the city, and then you have some of the teaching of the philosophers within the city. So he engages with the philosophers, but he also engages with the wider population. And some have argued that there was, uh, there were three criteria for uh, the introduction of a new religion to Athens. Robert Galden makes this case. First of all, there has to be a sponsor representing a deity. He must provide evidence that the deity is eager to reside in Athens. And then the deity's residence in Athens must be something that benefits Athenians. Um, and it seems Paul, in part, addresses those different conditions mm. within his speech. The other thing that he does is he takes some familiar statements. He takes the fact of this altar to the unknown God, and he uses that for rhetorical purchase. Um, so in some ways, he's appealing to common ground, but in many ways, he's taking what is on the surface common ground and then twisting things in a way that surprises people. Um, Paul isn't averse to being a bit of a troll as well at times, mm -hmm. such as when he talks before the council and appeals to the resurrection to set the Pharisees against the Sadducees. Here he might be setting the philosophers against the more general idolatrous type folk of the city. Hmm. Yeah, this is one of Paul's uh, set speeches, sermons in Acts, one of, one of three long ones. Uh, three long ones prior to his arrest. He, he gives a number of uh, lengthy defenses once he's arrested. But uh, at, in the first missionary journey in chapter 13 of Acts, we have this lengthy sermon that's directed toward Jews, and he's telling, uh, focusing on David, but he's uh, telling the story of Israel. Here it's a different, yeah, it's a different context and a different kind of rhetoric, different kind of emphasis uh, to, Gentile, to a Gentile audience. And then in chapter 20, he's going to give his farewell address to the Ephesian elders after he's been in Ephesus for some time, and he's addressing the church, and he's uh, uh, giving them instruction about uh, what they're going to face after his departure and so on. It's like a, an upper room discourse from Paul. But yeah, the, those, it's interesting to contrast the emphases that Paul has in those different speeches and uh, definitely is tailoring things to his audience. But I think, I, I think you're right, Alistair, that the, you have the surface, uh, this surface common ground but what Paul is claiming, uh, I think, is uh, radically at odds with what, uh, with what uh, intellectual uh, Greeks and Hellenists would have believed. I think something as simple as uh, verse 24, 23 and 24, uh, I found this altar with an inscription to an unknown God. Okay, there's, there is some God that they don't know about, which uh, may be associated with the, the philosophical God, uh, the high God of which all of the Olympian gods and the personalized, uh, the uh, personified gods of, of popular religion are just manifestations. Paul claims to introduce the Athenians to this God, verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it, uh, he's the Lord of heaven and earth and doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. So he moves from talking about this unknown God, which he's going to introduce to them. There is a high God. But Paul immediately starts talking about this high God as the creator of heaven and earth and of everything in it, which sounds very innocuous to us. Um, even non-Christians today would say, yeah, of course, uh, the high God is the creator God. But that's not, that certainly is not the philosophical understanding of uh, ancient Greek philosophy. The high God was too high 
to be involved in something like creating heavens and the earth and things in it, uh, or you know, forming uh, humanity from one blood, being concerned about humanity. That's that's beneath the high God. The high God is you know pure thought, pure thinking, and that would be disturbed by any thought of something specific as a human being. So Paul is Paul very quickly moves from. I'm going to introduce this high God to you, but he's very different from the high God you know. He's, he's not delegated the creation of the world to some demiurge, some secondary being. He actually is the creator of heaven and the earth, and he's the one who gives all good gifts. He's the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Uh, he's intimate to us as, as well as being the God who's transcendent. And in addition to that, he takes up some of the themes that you find in places such as the book of Isaiah, that God is not just the and one God of creation. He's also the one God of providence and the one God of eschatology, that this is the God who has given all nations their particular boundaries. Um, it seems there that he's taking up something from um, Moses's song in Deuteronomy chapter 32, um, verse 8 following, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. And then moving on from that to the message of Christ as the one who will judge all. Um, and in those senses, it's taking what Isaiah emphasizes. God is the God of all creation, but God is also the God who rules in history and the God who will judge all persons at the end of history. A number of commentators have lined out how Paul both, interestingly enough, both conform sometimes to the concerns of the Epicureans and the Stoics about popular mythology and uh, Greek polytheism, but also, uh, more importantly, he critiques all of these ideas in both Epicurean and Stoic conceptions of the world, their um, ideas about man, about the future, about they're unraveled in by Paul. They're, um, they're exposed. Uh, it's, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, anybody with a commentary and ask can find this, but the one thing that both Epicureans, well, this is not the one thing, but one thing that Epicurean and Stoic philosophers often um, agreed on is that the world really has no purpose. It's not really going anywhere. Uh, there may be cyclical kinds of changes, but there's no end point. And as Alistair just said, uh, what we have here is a beginning, a middle, and an end. And Paul says it's all com coming to a point on a day uh, where God has determined that he will judge the world in, in justice by a man he has appointed. That is something new, and that is something new that the Athenians need to hear. Oh, did we also say that uh, Paul is being accused of what Socrates was accused of and tried for, you know, almost 400 or so years ago, that he is a preacher of foreign divinities. Paul's speech begins with this reference to the unknown God, this, um, this idol or this um, place of worship, and then moves towards this situation of the God who speaks and acts in his son, Jesus Christ, and calls all to give account. And so you have this form of religion where you have all these different altars and idols that are set up for different gods, these different pigeonhole deities that are there within this larger pantheon. 
And then at the end, you have this completely different vision of a God who holds all to account, the God who speaks, the God who cannot be bound to um, human images and idols and altars, but holds all um, accountable. And that shift, I think, has a lot to say to us, to the way that we can often seek as part of our civil religion to control God as one of the altars or one of the idols that we have. We can speak of ourselves as being a Christian country, or we can talk about the way that invoke God for our political causes or for our own um, social ends. And yet God is the one who stands above all human history. He's the one who sets the boundaries for all nations. And he's the one to whom all nations and persons must give account. And that vision is one that it takes something that is at the very heart of um, Athenian life, something, this pantheon of gods, these different deities that are all around the place, all part of the safe social order. And it turns it inside out and upside down. It presents them with an image in which nothing can ever be the same again. This is not a God that can be contained. This is not a God that you can continue to worship as the unknown God. Once that God has been made known, that altar is seen to be worthless. In the analysis I gave at the beginning uh, of our discussion, the center of this sermon is uh, verses 26 through 28, where God is said, uh, Paul says that God has uh, placed boundaries for every nation and particularly verse 27, that, that, that they should seek God if perhaps he might, they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. So the, uh, the, uh, the providential arrangement of nations and their boundaries and God's orchestration of history is intended to draw men to himself. Uh, that's an that's a important emphasis. Uh, I, it seems to be the center of Paul's, uh, Paul's sermon here. It goes against some popular understandings of what God is up to in in uh, prior to the coming of Christ, that uh, God is concerned only with Israel and saving the chosen people. Uh, but there, Israel always was called in order to be a witness to the Gentiles, in order to be a light to the Gentiles. Uh, and even in God's orchestration of history outside of the history of Israel, uh, he's orchestrating it in order to draw men to himself, to draw the nations uh, to know him. The scope of God's grace uh, from creation on uh, needs to be something we're, we we recognize in in, our, in the scriptural account. The Bible focuses, of course, on the history of Israel, but we need to be aware that the whole time God is still showing His mercy and and showing and revealing Himself uh, by His gifts and by His by His goodness to uh, to the Gentiles also. And yet, at the same time, the way in which the Athenians and the Gentiles in general have responded to God's mercy and grace to them, uh, this generalized mercy and grace, in terms of their religious pluralism, if you will, their polytheism, is not something to be celebrated. It was not, mm -hmm. that's not a beautiful manifestation of cultural diversity mm -hmm. that Paul wants to celebrate. It turns out to be a pitiful expression of folly and ignorance. Um, and so I'll although there is um, definitely God placing various people with different languages and different cultures in their allotted places, yet the way in which they respond to that is clearly uh, critiqued by Paul. Mm -hmm. um, and now there's no longer, and also there's no longer any place for that. 
even though we might, uh, I think we can carve out a place even for uh, the kind of angelic overlordship over the Gentiles and, and the way that functioned in the ancient world. That's all gone now. Uh, now what's being celebrated is the unity of the human race and the, um, the universe, universality of Jesus' reign and uh, how he's going to bring everything and all people to the appointed goal at the end of history on Judgment Day. Yeah, I think that the emphasis on the unity of the human race is notable, as you mentioned, Jeff. Uh, from the beginning of Acts, we've had this kind of anti-Babel thrust. Uh, Pentecost brings people from every nation together hearing the great works of God in their own language, an inversion of the scattering of nations and languages at Babel. And now Paul is announcing that uh, the God who is unknown, previously unknown, is the God who made uh, all human beings from one and intends them to be har- harmonized together. I think your point is exactly right, that the Gentiles have not responded to God's general revelation of himself and gifts, his gifts to the nations as they should. And yet Paul seems to recognize that there's a, there's a kind of, there is a kind of groping toward the true God in the very recognition of Athens, very recognition of their ignorance, that there is, there's some being out there that is beyond that they don't know. And there, there's a, there's a placeholder for him. They aren't worshiping as they should but yet they're groping towards something and there's some, Paul is announcing something that they have suspect already. So that complexity I think is important. The nations are idolaters. They're not uh, responding to God's gifts as they should. And yet, at least here in Athens and certainly in many other places, there's some recollection or groping toward the God who Paul, whom Paul is announcing to them. I think that's accurate, obviously. And it's also something of a bone thrown to, the more um, sophisticated philosophers, because as we know, they have always critiqued the polytheism and the mythology of um, the common person. And here, I've no doubt that some of the more sophisticated thinkers here would have seen something of what Paul was doing, and yet at the same time be challenged that about their ignorance. It's one thing to be knowledgeable about the foolishness of the popular people and their their gods and their temples. It's another thing to know exactly what the answer is. And it's not to try to, like the Epicureans, that there is no God, there is no creation, um, or the Stoics, that God is some kind of rarefied, uh, fiery uh, being. Paul tells them exactly who God is. And the, uh, the end point of all their groping and their searching is revealed by Paul to be Jesus. I think it's it's curious to see how Paul res- comes to a conclusion here. Uh, he's preached resurrection everywhere he's gone in uh, uh, Jewish settings. Go back to chapter thirteen. He's preached resurrection as the uh, answer to the hope of Israel that they would have another another David. That's the way he's going to talk about resurrection once he gets into the various trial scenes in his defense of his ministry. But here, resurrection is proof of coming judgment, which is uh, a different sort of emphasis. I think you could say it's compatible, certainly, because uh, the, the king is the judge, and the resurrected David is the one who's appointed to judge all men 
But there's significantly different emphasis in what the resurrection means for these Athenians than than what it meant for the Jews. And it's interesting that, you know, uh, just the idea that uh, uh, judgment to come is part of the gospel, uh, preaching of the gospel is uh, is kind of a kind of a shock to the system, and we have to reevaluate what we think the gospel is if judgment to come is inherent in that proclamation. I mean, we we tend to think that freedom from judgment or or release from judgment is the good news, but Paul's saying resurrection means. There's a man appointed to judge all men. That's the proof that uh, God has appointed a day. And it's a man who will do so. I think most Christians think about God judging the world at the last day, but it's Jesus. It's the second Adam. It's the one who's been given this royal royal standing. This is the good news. The good news is not that God has been is gracious or he forgives our sins. That's always good news to everybody. Abraham on, but it's that there is a man who's been elevated to the place of ruler and judge over the entire world. That's often missed as well. And for someone who's getting so persecuted by Jews, this is a profoundly Jewish message about against paganism and idolatry, but with Jesus Christ in the very heart of it. It's um, Christ who is the true response to this sort of idolatry. He's the one who's going to judge. He's the one in whom God has revealed himself. Are we taking as a given that uh, the, the day that's been fixed in which Jesus will judge the world in righteousness is the last day, the final judgment? Or is Paul talking about something more imminent to his hearers, that there's a judgment coming on the inhabited earth, the oikumene, and uh, the resurrection is proof of that uh, looming judgment that's, uh, that's coming within the generation of the apostles. I wouldn't say it's given, but um, I would lean towards that interpretation. Uh, to the latter or to the former? To the interpretation that it is, it is thinking towards the final judgment. I think oh, that sorry. what is envisaged in places such as Matthew 25 is a form of judgment that is initiated by the destruction of Jerusalem that goes through history towards the end, which is the climactic judgment. So the division of the nations is something that occurs over the course of history, following from um, the initial judgment of that process, which is the judgment upon Jerusalem. I've always taken this to be one of those places that uh, gives us a, a final judgment. And so using it against the you know so-called full preterists um i think this is one of the, the places that says that yeah the world will end and there will be a judgment of the nations by jesus it is a little bit a little bit odd for us uh to think of final judgment as part of the good news and that the resurrection which is the uh, entry of new creation life into the world the resurrection of jesus that that is uh, proof that there will be a judgment. But I think, Jeff, part of the, uh, part of the answer to, to, to how we see this as part of the good news, part of the gospel, is to recognize that it is Jesus who's being appointed uh, and Jesus who's being elevated as uh, the incarnate son, as the man, the last Adam. And also the, just the fact that judgment has been given over into his hands, the hands of a crucified Savior, the hands of a perfect Savior and Lord, 
which means that final judgment is not in the hands of uh, the the various brutes and tyrants that seem to be controlling history. It's not in the hands of history. I mean, that's a that's that's a popular understanding. History will be our judge. It's a popular understanding in our historicist times. But judgment is not in the hands of history, in personal history. It's not in the hands of some uh, tyrant. It's in the hands of Jesus. And that's good news because we, just, we know who Jesus is. We know he's the last Adam who's given himself uh, on the cross, the last Adam who is uh, reigning in grace and mercy. He's the judge. And that's, uh, that's gospel for everyone. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.